This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and UConn Health Orthopedic and Sports Medicine. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information, and we're going to answer all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's great to be with you on this Saturday morning. And this is our 25th consecutive program in which we are primarily discussing COVID-19 and the current pandemic. And who thought we would be here when this first started? When we look at these statistics, they still continue to be staggering. From the standpoint that here in Connecticut, we have over 50,000, almost, almost 51,000 positive cases with over 4,400 deaths from Connecticut citizens. But when we look at the United States as a whole, we have over 5 million proven cases with over 170,000 deaths. These deaths are climbing on an average of 1,000 Americans per day. It's now predicted that there will be 200,000 dead Americans by Labor Day. So suffice it to say, we do not have control of this virus. And people who are out there thinking that they're going to fight the virus by reopening things and doing irresponsible things are sadly mistaken because the virus is still winning, and we know that. And until we put together a strategy, we're in trouble. But several things have been happening, and positive things. Uh, Here in Connecticut, we've been able to keep the rate of infection down to the point where, as many of you know, regular listeners, we now have more sports. At the Mohegan Sun, thanks to uh, the cooperation of Hartford Healthcare, we have a safe bubble program for combat sports. So mixed martial artists alternating every other week with Showtime Boxing are doing TV programs there. There are no guests. Everyone involved is tested. Many of us tested twice throughout the week, each week, in order to make that safe. And we are able to now broadcast live entertainment to many people. It's been a tremendous program, and I'm very proud to be involved in that with Hartford HealthCare, where we're doing 300 tests a week. And it's very interesting that when we do get a positive test, the contact tracing involved is so interesting to me. Now, I'm a neurologist, and I'm certainly not someone involved in the public health field in my career. So being a part of this contact tracing is pretty amazing because it's always kind of six degrees to somebody. You'll get a positive patient who tests positive. Now you have to test their family, the people they have contact with without wearing a mask, including people they may have had lunch with, uh, and then their relatives and try to work through this. Essentially, you go back, and this is something I learned, you go back four days. So you start your contact tracing from the time they test positive four days back to start looking for people who should be concerned. 
and potentially isolating and quarantining them. The good thing about this program is there's a very careful program of quarantine after someone tests positive. And I'm happy to say there have been relatively few uh, positive cases, much below the national average. But Connecticut is doing it right. Also from the standpoint that people who come in, even the fighters and officials who come into this state, have to be tested in their own state before they get on a plane. If they cannot, they are tested as soon as they get to the state of Connecticut, and proof of that has to be submitted to the Department of Public Health in order to either decide their quarantine period or if they are free to participate. So there are certain things that are working and that we're learning about public health and how to be ready for the future. One of the big issues we keep seeing now is sports, right? In the past week, the Big Ten and the Pac-12 have said they're not going to play football this fall, uh, which is big. Big revenue for small cities and towns. I understand uh, just for Tuscaloosa, Alabama, I mean, it's $650 million a year that they get from football alone. So it's a big move to say we're not going to play this fall out of safety concerns for the athletes, the student athletes. Let's not forget, they're there to be students, not for our entertainment. In the state of Connecticut, the CIAC, which oversees high school sports, is still kind of going through this process. Um, They weren't going to play. They were going to play. Now they're thinking about it. Uh, When we think of college sports not participating, it's hard to have sports where athletes are at risk begin to participate even at the high school level. I'm very happy that today my my guest in the second half of the program is going to be Dr. Lucia Benzoni. Dr. Benzoni is a pediatrician with Hartford HealthCare, and we're going to talk to her about getting back to school. This is a conversation that every household with children and grandchildren are having almost on a daily basis, is what's the plan for getting the children back to school? Are we going back to in classroom learning, distance learning, uh, forming pandemic pods, um, hybrid forms. So we're going to talk to Dr. Benzoni about that and also about the impact the coronavirus has had on children in the state of Connecticut and why are children involved and really kind of dispel some of the rumors out there um, that have been spread about children being immune. So I'm looking forward to that in the second half of the program. One of the other topics that we talk about often on this program has been the use of telemedicine and its rapid growth. And we continue to seek the support of insurance carriers to keep this going. Telemedicine can be by telephone, but more recently it's been by video. So people who are elderly have difficulty getting transportation. People who have work requirements and can't get to their primary care physician have found that using telemedicine and the relaxed regulations around telemedicine have been effective. The Cleveland Clinic reports that prior to COVID-19, they were doing about 5,000 telemedicine visits per month. So they, they were out ahead of the curve 
in terms of how this is used, and, and it's a phenomenal institution. Since COVID-19, they are doing over 200,000 telemedicine visits per month. So again, this is something we need to be thinking of and utilizing. One of the problems has been, in many cases, the elderly have difficulty getting onto these platforms that we use, whether it be Zoom or uh, Skype. You know, you, you have to click here, click there. What they have found at the Cleveland Clinic is that since the federal government relaxed the HIPAA requirements around FaceTime, which is the app on an iPhone or an iPad, elderly patients have been much more successful getting care through telemedicine because that's the way they visit with their grandchildren and great-grandchildren. So we're going to keep an eye on that and how this develops. I understand in the state of Connecticut, it will be paid for in full until March. So at least we have that period of time. And again, it's a period of time where we're learning and gathering statistics as to what impact it has had in terms of the safety of our citizens here in Connecticut. We're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be chatting a little bit more about the global race for a vaccine. I'm going to answer some questions from listeners that have been coming in, um, and I will take live calls. The phone number here, 860-522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842. Also, you can email me, and that has been... Uh, kind of a good way for people to get in touch with me and share articles and references. And the email is info at alessimd.com. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. And uh, several things have come up in the course of the past week. Uh, one of the things we're finding is that public health officials are now resigning. And it, it's very interesting. So public health officials, when we use that term, <clears throat> we, we think of um, these are typically physicians who oversee the health of a specific region. I mean, in the past, it's always been closing down restaurants that have produced bad food and um, whether there's a flu outbreak and keeping track of statistics. But suddenly these public health officials have been moved to the forefront of, of this pandemic. And one of the complications is that a public health official is typically a government employee. And sometimes the science that they produce differs from the political beliefs of whatever administration they are part of. In which case, these are scientists and they have to go by the science. So many of these folks, you know, are feeling that this is not what they signed up for, is fighting uh, with people they work for. And they are subsequently resigning. And we can't have that. We need to get really good, some of our brightest minds involved in public health. And among the things that public health officials look at are particular to the overall health of our country. Aside from the pandemic, there's a 
an excellent editorial in this week's New England Journal of Medicine. And it's titled Healthcare as an Ongoing Policy Project. And, you know, it, it, what's interesting about it, it really looks at the United States as compared to other wealthy countries. So we're not looking at us in terms of the third world or developing world. Um, this is other wealthy countries, and we're, we're talking about countries like Italy, Germany, Japan, Australia. And it's readily apparent that we're not doing well when we look at this in terms of life expectancy, childhood health, and avoidable deaths. Specifically, when you look at what percentage of the gross domestic product we spend on health care, it outstrips every other wealthy country uh, in terms of the money we are spending for health care. Yet, nevertheless, the U.S. life expectancy continues to trend downward and lags behind all these other countries. It, and even recently, it fell for the past three consecutive years. Okay, so life expectancy in this country is falling. And it's a lot of it is due to deaths, due to alcohol, opioids, other drugs, and suicides. And one of our biggest problems is access to care. In terms of trying to get people into a doctor, get them some type of care before their illness becomes more critical. So when we look at life expectancy, I mean, we are really at about age 79. We are below every other developed country from the standpoint of life expectancy and infant care. Yet we spend so much more. And much of this is because we, we don't have the same social support that other countries have invested in. Um, such as child care or housing support, nutrition, transportation, uh, unemployment, which continues to rise. So you might say, well, what's unemployment got to do with health? It has a lot to do with health because as a result, there's higher risks of obesity and chronic diseases that are the result of something preventable don't get treated and lead to complications and death. So we really have to look at Healthcare as a whole of a national strategy. Now, I think what every American, no matter what political belief you're in, you have to realize we got to do better than this. I mean, we have to do better than a decline. One of our jobs, one of the reasons we pay government is for health and safety. Keep me and my children safe and our health. And the United States is not doing a good job of it. I think everyone could agree. Now, there have been different opinions on how to go about it. But to do nothing is not the answer. And unfortunately, over the past four years, nothing has been done except to repeal a program that was having some benefit not the benefit we hoped it would have, but it was working toward that. When we think of the Affordable Care Act, I, I was opposed to the Affordable Care Act. From the selfish standpoint of being a physician and having to deal with regulation. 
But I will tell you now that it was better than what we have now, which is nothing. Okay, we have a failing Medicare system right now. And we need to get on that. Is Medicare for all the answer? I don't believe so. I don't believe so because I don't think the government does a good job of running health care. But there are many variations that we need to look at in order to move forward. And we have to do that. We have to keep our citizens alive. And it has never become more prominent than during this pandemic that we need to be ready for this. One thing I wanted to touch on quickly was uh, I got an email this week talking about ancient cures, natural treatments. And I found it interesting. It was looking back at a thousand-year-old treatment uh, as an antibiotic. Uh, my comment on that is, yeah, many of these things are very important. Don't forget, the antibiotics we have now, um, antivirals, antifungals, are all made from biologicals. So the fact that people are going back and looking at things that use natural ingredients like garlic or onion and uh, wine and things such as that in terms of antiseptic properties is important. It's just taking a step backward in order to move forward. So uh, I'm, I'm not a big naturalist as the only way to do it, but I do believe in science and there is science behind that. So I think, uh, I believe it was Steve who sent that over to me. Uh, and I think we need to support uh, that continued work. We're going to take a short break. Now we're going to be back with my guest today, who is Dr. Lucia Benzoni, a pediatrician. We're going to talk about getting back to school and answering all your questions about getting back to school. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. And it gives me great pleasure to introduce my guest in this half of the program, Dr. Lucia Benzoni. Dr. Benzoni is a pediatrician uh, working with Hartford Healthcare Medical Group. Her office is at 481 Bantam Road in Litchfield, Connecticut. And if you wish to reach her office, the phone number is 860-567-1263. I invited Dr. Benzoni to share her knowledge and thoughts with us regarding the effect of COVID-19 on the pediatric population of Connecticut and how we're going to get back to school. Dr. Benzoni, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, let's get right into it. What, how has COVID-19, what has been the effect of COVID-19 on the pediatric population here in Connecticut. We've heard a lot about it nationwide. Mm -hmm. And we've heard misinformation about children being immune to COVID-19. Can you address those issues for us? Uh, yeah, sure. This is a very uh, big topic and one I have a great interest in. It's very, very um, you know, temporary and it's hopefully a very temporary situation and hopefully we're addressing it well. I want to just say one thing about Connecticut and that I think that we have done an amazing job in Connecticut as you look across all the states. The children have been affected uh, immensely, beyond belief, but with COVID-19, not from being ill but from the impact that they've had on the social isolation issues, not going to school, their parents not being able to work, and there's 
the impact of that is, is very, very far-reaching for all of the patients that I see. I, I see about, you know, easily 30 kids a day, and I talk to their parents, and I listen to what they say about how the, you know, the online learning was for them and how ineffective it was for most children, although there are some children, children that had anxiety issues and social-emotional issues that actually did okay with the online learning. Uh, for the vast majority of children, the online learning was, was really no learning. Turn the on to no. <laughs> and yeah, I know with my own son, he's 16, um, and he's a very good student and going into 11th grade now, but he had to check in at, I think, 7 o'clock or 7.30, and he got up, he checked in, and promptly went back to bed. Well, it doesn't sound like that was working. <laughs> no. Uh, but, but I think... For some reason, and I think for some people, it can work. I mean, it takes Absolutely. maybe we're saying a certain level of maturity or or approach to uh, a distance learning uh, uh, overall it can work for very well. Um, you know, depending on the the child and the amount of supervision. Unfortunately, for the very young children, you have to have a parent that's right there with them, supervising them. Uh, for the online learning. The older kids can do all right. And my son, in fact, did very well. He just did his work later, didn't want to, he was able to do it later. And some children, especially children, as I mentioned before, the children that have social issues, um, anxiety issues about going to school, they thrived in this online learning. But the vast majority of children really did not do well. And there was a, a big backsliding of education during these March, April, May, and June for most children. So are you advocating to get children back into the classroom? I think it's very important to get children back into the classroom. There are always are exceptions. If you, I have parents that come in and they express concern. Their 89-year-old grandmother lives at home, and they're very worried about their child going back to school. And I will say to them, you know, that's a personal decision. If your child does well with the online learning, please continue the online learning. Uh, but if your child doesn't do well, then you have to think of some way to protect your your mother, um, your 89-year-old mother that is in the house. There is some of uh, some protection can be done within the households themselves of the so, more vulnerable. So, if parents are thinking of sending their children back to school uh, in in the classroom, what should they be asking the teacher or the principal or the administrators um, or the school board in terms of what are the questions they should ask to feel more secure about their children going back into in-classroom learning? Mm-hmm. Um, they should, first of all, know what the school, how is the school going to protect the children while they are at school? What, what measures will be in place to protect children? Um, how will the mask uh, mandates be enforced? Where are the children going to be learning? Are they going to be in a classroom with 15 kids or a classroom with five children? Are they going to be cohorted, meaning they stay with just the same group of children all day long, including for recess and lunch, which can be very effective. I just want to put that out there. Another thing that the schools are looking at, I know at least our school district is looking at having some outdoor classrooms. And honestly, although it may be distracting, um, outdoor classrooms I personally feel are a very good option for the months of September and October where we can. The transmission of uh, coronavirus is, is less outdoors than is indoors just because of the increased ventilation. Um, and also you're able to provide more spacing for children outdoors than you are indoors, given if you're, you're, you're of course, your school district has that option and that land available to them. You know, people are talking about the hybrid model where they will do in-classroom learning 
every other day or every other week or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, Which brings into the question is how much in-classroom learning do they need? Um, Do you think the hybrid model will be effective? It's going to, the hybrid model, model will be more effective than the, just the online learning. The, on, the hybrid models that I hear being proposed here, at least I know Thomaston and Canton, um, are two school districts that are proposing that a cohort of sco- students go to school Tuesday, Mondays and Tuesdays. The school is closed down on Wednesdays for cleaning, and then another cohort of students goes on Thursday and Friday. Now, the opposite cohorts would be doing the online learning on the days when they are not in school. And I believe teachers, and my daughter is a fifth grade teacher, um, the teachers are still figuring out exactly how they're going to do the online learning. Is it going to be pre-recorded or is it going to be live streaming, which poses some difficulties for parents for working and and, monitoring their child to make sure they're there at the online classroom. The other thing for the teachers this poses is they have a group of students that are sitting in front of them, another of them that are, you know, on that Zoom screen, all those little faces on the Zoom screen, and they have to pay attention and include or try to include everybody. So it is a big challenge. It's a, it's a huge challenge. One that I think actually a lot, most of the school districts from the plans that I've read, they've done an amazing job of coming together these last five months and really working hard to come up with a plan that's acceptable to everyone. What's interesting is some of the people I've had contact with in the administrative level, uh, when they're really honest about it, uh, they're not so sure this is going to hold up, um, you know, because it's just going to take one outbreak and this thing falls apart. And what it, what it begs the question is, are we developing in actuality a new option for education in general, even after the pandemic? If we could get used to this and we could adapt. Um, do you think this is going to be? Uh, these are going to be more options for parents in the future. Well, online learning, of course, is not new. Colleges have been doing it. Vast majority of colleges are offer online options. And in fact, some degrees can be totally online now. So the real newness is bringing this down to the high school level and the elementary school level. There is probably going to be some of this that is carried on even post-COVID. And it's probably going to offer a good option for parents who want wanted to homeschool but weren't quite organized enough to. It's going to, of course, then it brings into question so many other things like federal funding for the children that are going to school, days of school, hours of school, all of that, it, above and beyond COVID-19 issues. Um, I do feel that there will be in the future more cutouts for online, at-home learning, yes. Well, homeschoolers have been around for a very long time, especially in remote areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of my colleagues who's a doctor said he was homeschooled right through high school, uh, living uh, in Montana. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, I guess it. Uh, I think people who always thought, should I homeschool, as you said, are probably saying, hey, it's time to take the leap and maybe I go to work part-time and do uh, – homeschooling for a while. Right, and this if this type of homeschooling is different than the type of homeschooling that was prior to COVID in that the homeschooling prior to COVID was really not, there was no curriculums that were followed. It was really right. very, not very closely monitored at all. This would be a much more streamlined, much more uh, unified approach, and children that were homeschooled may choose to do the public school option. Um, you may see some of the homeschoolers actually coming back to the schools, although still being at home. 
Wow. This is great. Listen, we're going to take a short break, and I want to get back with um, Dr. Lucia Benzoni because I really want to delve into a little bit about why have we done, how have we done so well here in Connecticut with respect to children? What does the data show? So we're going to take a short break, and then we'll be right back. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and my guest today in this final segment is Dr. Lucia Benzoni. Dr. Benzoni is a pediatrician with Hartford HealthCare at 481 Bantam Road, Litchfield, Connecticut. Lucia, I guess, uh, how have we done so well? I mean, at the outset of the program, uh, we, we keep hearing uh, that Connecticut has done well. We've been able to keep our rates of infection down Mm -hmm. Uh, with respect to children how have we done that and i'm not so sure we should be patting ourselves on the back too soon no i'm always afraid it's going to come back so how did we get here what do we do right (laughs) one thing we have is we do have some very rural areas so we just have more space so you know when when the schools closed down in march um we quickly closed down and children we're not closed into big apartment buildings with, you know, a lot of other people. You know, for the most part, there are, of course, there are exceptions there, Hartford and Waterbury. Um, some of the bigger cities, of course, had that. But for the most part, Connecticut is a very rural state. And um, the other thing with children is, of course, that 7% of COVID infections are in children. Um we know that, and children do carry a high viral load in their nose. So a lot of the cases may have been asymptomatic that we we didn't detect them in children. They may have had them, but they didn't get sick, and they probably didn't pass them on to their grandparents because of the social mitigation measures that were put in place very quickly. Um, I, I want to interrupt. What did you mean when you said they have a high viral load um, so, in their nose? I, I think so, just to clarify so, that. So just children in their nose, a recent CDC study came out that showed that children actually do have a high viral load. They don't get sick necessarily because there's a okay. there's a lot of stuff that's coming out, and I'm sure you probably have read a little bit about this, about the angiotensin-converting enzyme receptor sure. and, and its susceptibility. Children just don't have as many of that in their nose. They can have the virus just sitting there in the nose, not making them sick. Um, and we don't know how well they spread because of that. There was a recent study that came out in the U.K. of 20,000 children that showed that people pose, you know, students pose very little risk of spreading COVID. And as you know, everything changes every single day yep. um, and, and with COVID. Amongst um, children, eight, 18 to 29 years old, they just don't get sick. But even less sick are the 5 to 17-year-olds. Uh, and that's the school age group. Hospitalization for a five to seventeen year old is nine times lower even than the eighteen to twenty nine year old. It's the lowest hospitalization rate and death rate of any group. And that's the school age group. So they are, you know, somewhat of a not protected, but they are somewhat of a less vulnerable population than any other age group, the five through seventeen year old group. They're not less vulnerable for passing it. They're just less vulnerable for getting sick. So I think the biggest thing we're talking about is making sure that our children don't infect people that are vulnerable. Here's one of the problems I have with children, and and adults to some degree, but mostly with children. We're going to ask very young children to keep a mask on in school. Not an easy thing to do because I could see teachers spending half their day saying, Johnny, can you put your mask back on or Mm -hmm. pull it up over your nose 
or, you know, who washing your hands. Um, everybody wash their hands, wash them right. I mean, it's just things that children don't right. naturally do. Right, which is one of the reasons I think that being outdoors, number one, will be, if, if you can, as much as possible. I know that's not possible for everyone, but that's going to be something to be talked about. Um, but children, I'll tell you, in my office, my experience has been, children are very good at keeping masks on for 20 to 30 minutes. They kind of look at it as a costume. Um, and they come in the office, they like wearing them. I'll sometimes say, you can take your mask off, and they still want to wear them. Um, I know that it's going to wear off, so the ch- teachers are going to have to make it almost like a game and make it fun for the kids to, to do this. And it won't work for everyone. We know nothing's perfect. But it's going to be, you know, it's, it is going to be necessary, but I don't think it's going to be quite as hard as what people think, just from what I've seen here in the office. There are going to be the certain age, the certain groups of children, the emotional the emotionally immature, the children with ADHD, the children with behavioral issues, they're the ones that are going to be a little bit harder to get to keep the masks on. And that's something you have a special interest in. I noticed when I looked at your bio with uh, children with ADHD. Um, uh, get, just getting back to it, it what's your sen- feeling from the parents you've seen? I, I assume you've started seeing the back-to-school physicals um, yes. already. Yeah, and on spot of them, yes. Oh, so do, do you think a majority are going to send them back? Yeah, the majority are going to send them back. Absolutely. They feel very strongly their children need to be in school, just socially, emotionally. And also parents are exhausted. A lot of parents are exhausted from having their children home because they've been working from home too. Um, and I do have the parents, though, who are refusing to send their children to school because they don't like the mask mandate and they find it hard to believe that their five-year-olds will need to stay in a mask for, you know, the five to six hours that they're in school. And I also have the parents that are deciding to keep their children home because of the child's underlying issues of asthma um, or, you know, immune deficiencies. So we have a probably a 2% population of my practice that are planning to keep their kids home. In Europe, it appears that they've had some success with reopening schools nor, uh, to some to a normal extent, in some to some degree, um, probably because they got on top of the mitigation issues sooner and shut down or followed the rules better, as we have in Connecticut. Mm-hmm. Do you think Connecticut might have might our success might be linked to the fact that we? may have followed Europe more than we followed the rest of the country? I think we did a very, I don't know if we exactly followed Europe, but we did do a very good job in in, mitigating it and putting masks on early and keeping people separate. Most of the people that I knew when their children went home in March, they were very good about not having play dates. They were very good about keeping their children. They listened. They listened to the medical community. They listened to what was happening. And most of my patients will tell me that they have a healthy respect for coronavirus, but they're not scared. They're not fearful. They're, they have a healthy respect. They think that we've done a good job and that they will continue to do a good job with their social isolation. It's funny, you know, when I go up to Boston and when I come here in Litchfield, so my son lives in Somerville, Massachusetts, and there everybody, everybody walking on the street is wearing a mask, whether they're, 15 feet away or they're riding a bicycle. And here we come back to, and Boston didn't do as good a job, but we understood the virus and the transmission better, I think, because you'll come to towns here, and when people are walking by themselves, they may not necessarily be wearing a mask, and they do a very good job of putting it back on when they approach another group of people. Uh, We have a minute left. 
What's the message to parents now in terms of school? What would be your final message to them? I would say that it is important for children to be in school and to have that social that, that social interaction. It is important also to understand that when the children go to school that they need to listen to their teachers and do what what is asked of them to mitigate the risk of transmitting COVID. And there are so many things coming out now that every day it changes. So even though everyone is saying we predict that kids are going to go to school, there's going to be an outbreak, and then we're going to shut down again, we don't know. We just don't know what's going to happen. Thank you. As Dr. Fauci has said, we still don't know what we don't know. Right. But with that, uh, I thank you for your time and thank you for all your efforts up there in Litchfield and uh, for Hartford Healthcare for making you available to us. And thank you very much thank for having me on the Thanks. show. It was great to chat with uh, Dr. Benzoni. As if you have any questions, you could reach me at info at alessimd.com. Many thanks to our studio producer, Mike Olko, has been on the board, and that allows me to do this program from my home. Jeff Chandler is in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. If you missed any part of today's program, you can get it on the Healthy Rounds podcast. You just download that from iTunes or wherever else you get your podcast from. Next up on WTIC is going to be Garden Talk with Len. Until next week, this is Dr. Anthony Alessi. Please stay healthy. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi. Sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and UConn Health Orthopedics and Sports Medicine. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com.